right, here we go. Oh, it's dark outside. I've been noticing now, because I do this in front of my upstairs window, it's like, oh my gosh, it used to be light out during Wednesday wake up, and now darkness has come. Winter is coming, as they say. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining. The last few weeks we've talked about feelings, second foundation of mindfulness, and last week we explored a little bit about the difference between worldly and unworldly sensations, or worldly and unworldly feelings. And the main distinction we talked about last week was that the Buddha saw human development going towards less dependence on the sensory world and more reliance on happiness that's generated within. Happiness that's not dependent on outside experiences. Happiness that is what he calls blameless. And so the unworldly sensations that the Buddha is talking about are essentially the types of happiness that arise from spiritual practice. And the different qualities of the heart that he talks about are things like letting go, wisdom, generosity, compassion. These are what he talks about as being higher forms of happiness. And then there's awakening, which is considered to be the highest aspiration. But in between our sensory world and our spiritual practice, or between the sensory world and enlightenment, so to speak, we have what he calls the unworldly feelings. And these are just the feelings that come from spiritual practice. So I wanted to talk about these this week because they're important. And I know you've probably heard of them in different contexts. They're not really new to the Dharma. They're always mentioned in various aspects of Dharma practice. But I wanted to talk about them in light of this idea of them being unworldly, right? Unworldly. And again, that just means they're not res responsive or necessarily dependent on the eyes, ears, touch, taste, smell, or necessarily thinking about something, thought stimulation. So this is a type of happiness that comes from our spiritual practice. It's considered to be more reliable because we can draw it up when we're feeling down, when we feel like we need a bit of inspiration and a bit of hope and a bit of softness and gentleness in our life. We can bring up loving kindness or we can engage in an act of generosity or we can let go of something and that can bring a sense of ease and well-being. So it's not dependent, so that gives us a little bit more control, a little bit autonomy, a little more, uh, see what the word would be. Well, more what I sort of see it as is like we can steer the vehicle a little bit more, right? We have our hands on the wheel. So if we need to make a left turn, we can actually turn the vehicle left. If we want to go right, we can go right. And that's why it's considered to be a higher form of happiness, because we can engage it when we need to. We can call upon it, and it can come together for us in heart and mind when we actually need it to be there for us. So it's, it's a little more reliable, one might say. So I'll talk about these, and then we'll give them some context. Um, I think the one to start with, I was trying to figure out which one to do first. So I think the one to start with is renunciation. So renunciation in the Dharma is what we usually call letting go, what I always call trading up, trading up for higher forms of happiness. The word renunciation, I know many of us know it from spiritual communities and religious traditions. It's what the monastics do, right? They renounce the world, they go into the monasteries. So I know some of us come from spiritual backgrounds where renunciation may have a negative connotation. We might look at it uh, like we're 
as lay folks that maybe monastics are looking down on lay folk and saying the world is bad and you're taking part in sensual pleasures so you're not spiritual. That is not the way the term is used in the Dharma, at least not in my experience of practice. Renunciation really is about letting go of what we think is happiness and replacing it with something that's greater, something that's deeper, more authentic, and longer lasting. So that's really what we're doing. We're not, it's not really a sacrifice, although it might look that way in the beginning. It really is trading one thing for another. And the more we practice renouncing or trading up, the easier it is to do and the deeper the pleasure that we get from the experience. So one way of looking at this, I like to look at it as clearing space, right? I like to look at renunciation as creating an open space so something new can arise, right? Something nourishing, something supportive, something loving, something generous, right? So renunciation for me is a letting go and creating an emotional and psychological space so something else can arise in its place that's deeply nourishing. So it's always an attitude of pleasure in this sense. We're letting go so we can have joy and ease. One thing to know about meditation practice, right? Just our, if you think about basic mindfulness, every time you intend to be mindful, you are letting go. You are renouncing distraction, right? You are renouncing one of the hindrances. You are letting go of the distraction of the past. You're letting go of the distraction of the future and you're just settling in to what is. So mindfulness by its very nature is a type of renunciation because you're letting go of all the chaos in the mind, all the chaos in the heart, all of the irritation and agitation, and you're falling back to what is, into the present moment and getting in touch with what is so. So mindfulness always has a component of letting go of one thing so your object of meditation can come clear into view. So we're used to renouncing, actually, as meditators, right? I think I might have said earlier in the guided meditation, like when we sit down in meditation, we make an intentional aspiration to be present. That means we're letting go of the desire to fantasize about, I don't know, maybe watching TV later on tonight or thinking about tomorrow or rolling in regret or thinking about our list of things to do. We're actually giving that up. We're actually choosing to let go of that distraction. So think of renunciation in those terms and I think it becomes a softer, more palatable and sort of friendly aspiration rather than feeling like it's a punishment or a sacrifice or deprivation, which is how I think we often approach renunciation. Renunciation is also a commitment in my experience to simplicity. Studies show that a lot of anxiety and a lot of agitation we get as modern human beings comes from the fact that our lives are so complex. Our lives are inundated with stimulation, inundated with complexity, right? So we have this sort of chaos of trying to live in modernity, and it's tough. We have a lot of stuff coming at us. We have more stimulation than ever before coming at a more rapid speed than ever before. So renunciation is a commitment to decluttering our sense doors, right? Falling back into a simpler moment-to-moment -moment experience. And in that simplicity, we can get a sense of safety, a sense of security, and a sense of ease. So again, this is a higher pleasure. This is a letting go. This is the type of pleasure 
that the Buddha thinks of as unworldly because it's not dependent on outside circumstances. We can let go and fall back into a satiating simplicity and in that simplicity have the sense of awakening. So another way of looking at renunciation is that sense of simplicity, simplifying our lives. You'll know, I notice this all the time, like in movies or imagery, whenever you see like the monk or the guru, you know, you often see them out in a hut in the woods away from the world and they're living a simple existence. There's been numerous studies that have been done and it always shows that monastics rank as some of the happiest human beings across cultures. People who live simply and in spiritual practice always test highest on happiness scales. And so again, it's about the simplicity of life and the fact that a life of deep complexity can create chaos and tension and contraction of the heart and contraction of the mind. So simplicity. I was reading this article on minimalism, this trend we have these days in minimalism. And there was this great quote. This is a quote by, uh, let's see what her name is, Linda Esposito. She wrote an article in Psychology Today about minimalism and how a growing trend towards simplicity is healthy for the heart and mind and how it decreases anxiety. And she has this great quote and she says, be more with less, stress less, drive less, text less, talk less, eat less, be more with less. It's like a Zen koan, right? This is great. This is such a great testimony to simplicity and how by letting go of some of the intensity of our experience, we can remind ourselves of the beauty of the everyday moment, right? The relaxation and ease that's become cluttered by all the distraction and all of the demands on our sense doors, the demands on our attention. Be more with less, stress less, drive less, text less, talk less, eat less. I'm going to put that on a post-it note on my bathroom mirror. That's a great, that's a great strategy for November. So renunciation an unworldly happiness, as the Buddha says. Another way of looking at this that I've come to see for myself for renunciation is clutter versus clarity. Now, oftentimes we hear that if our house is cluttered, that it's symbolic of a cluttered mind, or if our mind is all cluttered, then it's symbolic of something else in our life. And I know I've found that when I take time to declutter my physical space, when I take time to declutter my schedule, when I take time to declutter the attention in all of my relationships, this allows for a focus that tends to lead to a kind of clarity. And that clarity tends to produce ease. So another way of looking at the ease that comes from renunciation, you can look at it as just decluttering the heart, decluttering the mind, and decluttering that psychological space to give you a sense of reprieve. And again, it's unworldly because we're lowering the volume. You might look at it like a radio knob. Uh, you could turn the volume down on the intensity of sense input, right? We declutter by turning the volume down on the input. So renunciation. Renunciation is one of our first unworldly feelings, unworldly sensations that is a form of higher happiness. The next one that the Buddha talks about 
which is a fan favorite for all of us Dhammists, all of us Buddhists, is generosity. Generosity. And this is not new for any of you. Generosity. And there's kind of a, I guess there'd be a cliche to say generosity is a virtue and we hear about being generous. And probably most human beings, if you asked if generosity was a good thing, they would say, well, of course, being generous is a good thing. So it's not out of our purview that we might say generosity is a higher sensation, a higher happiness, something that we aspire to, to be generous. But let me just clarify what it means in light of the Dharma. So first and foremost, for the Buddha, generosity meant an active effort to let go of the mind state of stinginess, the mind state of greed, the mind state of grasping and clinging, that sense of I, me, mine, I must have it, this is mine, that is yours, you can't have what I have, that sense of possession that can put the heart and mind in like a vice grip right? What we're letting go of in a sense of a mind state is we're letting go of the contraction that is the stingy heart and the stingy mind. And we want to do an openness, right? We want to lean into openness and let go of clinginess. And that's really the heart of generosity in the Dharma. And generosity, we know, can bring so much joy to others, of course, because we're giving and we're serving and we're caring for, and we're loving. And we all know what it feels like when someone is generous to us and how nourishing that can be, especially when we really need it. I mean, just take a second to think about a time that someone's been generous to you. Someone who's been generous with their compassion, with their listening, with their time. They took an opportunity to hear you when you needed to be heard. They loved you when you needed to be loved. They went out of their way to do something small for you, right? Just to be there. That kind of generosity is so nurturing, right? It transcends so much of the darkness and the despair and the contraction that we can feel as human beings. And it's important to know, and I think we forget this, that everyone in this room at some point has been that generous soul for another human being. At some point, you have offered your time freely to someone. You've offered your energy and cared for someone who really needed it. You've been selfless at some point in your life and done someone that grand divine favor of connecting deeply. You've listened, you've supported, and you've been there for somebody. And we can't underestimate how powerful this higher happiness is. Now, I admit, it's taken me a long time to become a more generous person. And this might just be my own perspective. Well, it is my own perspective. But, you know, when I was younger and I look back, I remember being in a time frame where I was very angry. I was very wounded. This was before Dharma. Uh, I was hateful at times. I just wasn't very patient. And I didn't look upon myself as someone generous, nor was there any real active aspiration to be generous. Um, I didn't think of myself as being like, you know, rude or anything actively. But now in my life, I aspire to be generous. I go out of my way knowing that it's a higher happiness. So I put that into play consciously now that I'm involved in being a meditator and that walking the Eightfold Path. I wanted to share you a couple stories of generosity that whenever I think of this unworldly uh, feeling, these two stories come to mind, which really bring this home for me. Uh, 
there was a neighbor that was right down the alley. I live in Southeast Portland where we have a bunch of those unpaved roads. And so we have, I call it the alley, but it's really just an unpaved road. That's one side of our house. So a couple houses down, there was an older gentleman uh, who was living there. And every time, or it seemed like from my perspective, every time I would go out into the yard to like mow the lawn or do weeding or do something, he would come over and he would talk. And he was a talker. He was a talker. And, you know, I didn't have the wherewithal to figure out how to engage him to eventually say, I need to get back to my yard work. And so when he would come over, there would be this contraction of the heart. There would be this like, oh, I hope he doesn't come out because I really want to get my work done and I don't want to talk to him. And, you know, what am I going to say? And how am I going to, you know? And so it was always a quite an uncomfortable situation at some point in the conversation. And I saw this in myself and I thought, let me use this as a meditation. So I made the commitment that the next time he was going to come over, that I was going to just sit down and talk with him. And I was going to talk as long as we were going to talk. And I wasn't going to worry about going back to yard work. And I was just going to give him the time of day. And we were just going to have a conversation. And I wanted to see what would happen if I could just be generous with my time and my heart to this person. So we sat down and we talked for a really long time. He told me all about himself and his family and marriage and kids and life story and all kinds of stuff. And I was just present. Like I just hung out and we talked to the guy. And at the end of the conversation, he reveals that he had cancer and he was dying. It was terminal. And it just really moved me because I didn't know that in all the times he'd approached me before, but it took an hour or so conversation or whatever for him to be able to reveal this other real moving thing to me. And here's where it all comes home. At the end of the conversation, here's my memory, at least in this moment, he was walking away and he turned around and he said back to me, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for talking with me. And then he walked away. And to my memory, I didn't see him again. I believe he passed away or he moved before he went into the hospital. So when I think of that, I think we need to remember that when we engage in an act of generosity, that could be an act of generosity that someone hasn't had in a really long time. A whole life can change in that moment. And in fact, it might be the last act of generosity that that person might experience. So the power of generosity for me is to remind myself when I have an opportunity to be generous, I try to remind myself, I don't know when the last time someone was generous to this person. Maybe they really need it and haven't been able to get it. And so if I can step up in my spiritual practice and offer an act of open heart, an extra 20 minutes of my time here or there to do this or that for someone, it's, inc it's an incredible thing. And one other story I'll share with you about my experience with generosity. When I was a, when I was a kid in my... I think I was in my, it must've been in my teens. I met this other kid and um, the first day I met him, his mom, I knew his mom. I think she, oh, she was a tutor of mine. That's right. She was a tutor of mine and she introduced me to her son. And the very first time I met this kid, we had this great conversation and the, he was wearing a John Lennon shirt that I believe was like an album cover. And we started talking and he said, uh, you know, John Lennon's really meaningful to me. And he took me upstairs to his room and he showed me all of his albums and he had album covers all over the walls with like the Beatles and John Lennon and stuff. And um, I was like, yeah, that's a really cool shirt. I haven't seen that before. And when I left, he had come downstairs and he gave me the shirt. And he says, I really 
enjoyed hanging out with you. I want you to have this shirt. This is really meaningful to me. I want you to have this and enjoy it. Now, at the time, being young and just a kid, that seemed really weird to me. I'm like, who are you? This is really, who does this? Like, it, it didn't feel generous or compassionate. It felt strange at the time. So I took the shirt and I wore it and I enjoyed it. And then he passed away about five years later. He passed away about five years later. And I was asked to speak at his funeral. And when I got up to speak at his funeral, the image of him giving me the shirt came, came back. And it was what I remembered about him after all those five or six years of having a friendship is that the first day I met this person, they literally gave their shirt off their back as a gesture of human connection and a sense of heartfelt gratitude for the small conversation we had. And to this day, that's what I do. That's what I think of gratitude. I think of these moments of human connection where we can offer somebody, it doesn't have to be material. This example is material, but that giving openly and generously, that absence of any stinginess in those moments is so pure and the hearts really feel it right when it happens. So this is why the Buddha considers this to be otherworldly, a higher happiness, because we can be generous anytime in spirit. We can open ourselves up with a generous attitude, right? We can listen generously. We can speak generously. We don't have to, sometimes I think we think of generosity as dana, coins in a cup, so to speak. And that's certainly a form of generosity. Donating money can be generous. But our deep emotional awake, wakefulness that we can offer somebody, hugely nourishing, hugely nourishing. So the power of generosity really moves me. I really like that the path has this in it. And prior to learning about the Dharma, no one had ever really talked to me about generosity as a virtue or something I should be working on or could aspire to be. So I really appreciate the Dharma for bringing this into the forefront of human connection, this power of both letting go and generosity. Okay, a couple more. Generosity. Now, there's a couple other, let's see, let's do, let's do wisdom and concentration, because these are the other two main ones that the Buddha talks about. Wisdom and concentration. Why are wisdom and concentration considered to be higher forms of happiness? Well, wisdom is a little self-explanatory, but let me just clarify in terms of what the Buddha meant by it. So in the Dharma, of course, wisdom is something that we're pursuing. We want to know the truth of what we are. We want to know the truth of happiness, the truth of suffering. We want to know how to get past our suffering. We want to know how to cultivate compassion and joy and tranquility. We practice to cultivate these heart-mind qualities that give us a sense of grace and ease through our day, deepen our connection with ourselves, deepen our connection with others. We pursue this actively as meditators. The wisdom that arises from these practices produces a certain sense of pleasure. That pleasure that comes from the wisdom is considered an otherworldly happiness, a higher happiness. It's not coming from an activity. It's coming from an insight into the truth of what we are. And that is, that. along with that comes a sense of satiation. So you might connect with this when you think to yourself, you know those moments in meditation where meditation just seems to be working, right? You're in the practice and suddenly it's spacious and you're at ease and you can feel like tension kind of go and you're just there and it feels safe and secure and pleasurable. 
That's the wisdom. That's the higher happiness that the Buddha is talking about. Knowing what is so in the present moment. Or those moments where you can see impermanence all of a sudden clearly and you see, oh, that's changing. Maybe I should let go and not be so attached. That gratification you get from realizing that you've had the insight of the Dharma, that pleasure is considered wholesome, blameless, as the Buddha said. And the Buddha says, enjoy that. You've worked for it through the meditation practice, and now the world is revealing itself to you. So when you see impermanence, when you understand the nature of dukkha, when you have moments of not self and you say to yourself, oh, wow, I get it. That pleasure that comes along with that, that's the higher happiness that the Buddha talks about when he's talking about the happiness of wisdom. It's the happiness of insight. When you've had true insight into your nature, it's considered a good thing, right, in the Dharma. And that pleasure is considered to be something to cherish. It is a higher form of happiness. Similarly, concentration. Now, again, if you recall the way I define concentration in my teachings, concentration is, at its simplest form, just continuous mindfulness. Concentration is mindfulness that continues from moment to moment, and it's uninterrupted. Right? It's when we're really present and we can string those moments together, one minute, two minute, five minutes, and that longer period of time where we can say now the mind is concentrated because it's with its object and it's not wandering away. So that's concentration. The more you're able to be present and the more you're able to string together moments of mindfulness, mindfulness itself will generate a sense of pleasure. That pleasure that comes from concentration is considered skillful. It's considered the fruit of your labor, so to speak. So concentration is considered to be a form of happiness, right? So that's just saying mindfulness is a form of happiness. When you're present and you're at ease, the more you are present, the more pleasure you'll feel from the experience of mindfulness. Now, some of this has to do directly with the fact that when we're present, the agitation of anticipation or the anxiety that can come from imagining a future possibility or the negative emotions that can arise from reminiscing about the past, all of that falls away. And present moment experience has its own grace. Present moment experience has its own ease and supportiveness. So those moments when you have a sense of real deep presence and you can feel like you're having a day where you're very wakeful and that feels good, Cherish that moment. That pleasure is considered wholesome in the Dharma. It's considered a type of pleasure that you really want to enjoy. If you look at it in terms of uh, our environmental climate change situation, this is one way to lower your carbon footprint, right? You have less consumption because you can spend time being happy in present moment awareness. So I always tell people the real cause of climate change is not the hydrocarbons. The real cause of climate change is overconsumption, right? Which because of our overconsumption, we have to produce more materials and transport more goods and fly more planes and run more machines. If we can learn to really relish the pleasure of the present moment, that is hugely beneficial for the environment, hugely beneficial for climate change. It really says that we can as human beings work towards a more stable happiness that is environmentally friendly, so to speak. So I feel like the Dharma and insight meditation is totally environmentally friendly. It's like a part of the Green New Deal, basically. Like 
continuous mindfulness should be written in to any type of climate change policy because the decrease in our need to consume outside of ourselves is less harm to the environment, right? Less impact. So wisdom, concentration, enjoy your pleasure of meditation. It's a gift. It's a gift that you're creating for yourself. So let's see, renunciation, letting go, wisdom, concentration, and generosity. Those are the higher happinesses. So I want to provide a little framework to understand just to get a little more depth of these unworldly feelings, right? Just a little more depth to these unworldly feelings. I know in my life, especially in the early stages of my practice, I was very skeptical that spiritual practice itself could bring pleasure that was equal to sensory stimulation. I did not buy it for one bit. I really, in fact, I was very antagonistic towards some of my meditator friends who kept telling me that, mindfulness and concentration and these other worldly there was going to be ecstatic and I was going to feel good and my commitment was to prove them wrong and I really wanted to prove to them that actually the greater joy was basically sex drugs and television and we would sort of argue these points that meditation and spiritual practice could be satiating could be really comforting now 27 years later I'm the biggest salesperson for meditation as a path to happiness as you'll ever see. So I'll be the first one to say that renunciation creates an incredible amount of satiation and an incredible amount of happiness. And that I've gotten so much relief and nourishment from practicing simplicity and decluttering my lifestyle and constantly looking for ways to let go. And the ease that has come in those states of meditation is remarkable. It was beyond my imagining. I did not think it was true that there could be such deep states of satisfaction. And in my own experience, say with concentration, I remember the very first time that I experienced the jhanas, right? Just which is basically deep concentration. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I didn't realize that my own heart and mind could produce such pleasure. I didn't realize I could feel and the pleasure I was experiencing I could see was coming from the fact that my mind wasn't agitated, that I was experiencing this great joy that came from the fact that my mind had relaxed and was at ease and just being with the breath for a long period of time. And that just blew my mind. It really did. It really blew my mind that the human heart and mind can create an inner world that's so deeply satisfying. And it made me realize that I was seeking that satisfaction in my life. Through other things, I was trying to feel at ease and feel a sense of deep reprieve by stimulating myself. And I, it wasn't working because the heart and mind are not designed to experience that deep sense of ease when we're being stimulated at the sense doors. So just a testament to the practice in my own experience over all these years, I really didn't believe it at first. I did not believe in the renunciation part of the path. I was very not interested in letting go of anything. And as I did begin to let go consciously, um, it did create a space in my heart where what filled in was joy, which was a deeper connection to people and to myself. Um, so I would ask, invite you to look at it in those terms. It really does create a sense of space where something else moves in, something else that you haven't experienced yet 
because it's a different kind of happiness. It's a different kind of joy. Putting this in perspective with the Dharma, I wanted to offer one last framework for today. When I was writing this Dharma talk, when I was thinking this through, I kept thinking, I'm really glad that I've pursued the Dharma the way I have. Like, I'm, I'm really glad that I had teachers who really inspired me to practice regularly, to go on retreats, to take the practice seriously. Because now, after 20-something years of practice, the cumulative effect of the experience is like one of the, 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 most thing, one of the things in my life that I'm most grateful for. And I wanted to frame this by saying, only well, put it this way, I would invite you, as I've been invited by other teachers, to approach your practice with the highest aspiration of awakening. And what I mean by that is that the Dharma and the tools of the Dharma can be used for all kinds of things. So as a Dharma teacher and a therapist and a coach, I know that we can use mindfulness for everything from pain management to insomnia. We can use mindfulness for therapeutic purposes. We can use mindfulness to just feel a sense of bliss during our day. We can use the Dharma for so many different things. We can use mindfulness for just a basic, um, well, I guess relaxation, stress, re stress reduction is what I was thinking, just for stress reduction. And all of that is wonderful. And personally, with students and clients, I use it for that purpose. However, there is a higher aspiration with the Dharma, which it's which is the spiritual part, right? Which is the spiritual nature, which is the emotions we just talked about tonight. Aspiring beyond stress reduction, beyond the psychotherapeutic relief, beyond the anxiety reduction and the depression reduction and the lower blood pressure and all of that stuff. Beyond that stuff, there is a deeper satisfaction in the Dharma that's possible. Now, the thing is with the Dharma, the Dharma is like a tool. So, Here's an example. I don't know if this metaphor will land, but here's what I was trying. I was trying to think of a metaphor over the last few days on how to explain how I have felt about this. So the Dharma is like a tool or the Eightfold Path, you could say, is a set of tools. So if I have a hammer, a hammer is designed to hammer in nails and to build things. And it's elegantly designed to remove nails as well. It's set up that way. It's built with physics in mind to hammer things in and to pull things out. That's what it's designed for. Now, I can use this hammer as a paperweight. I can put it on my desk and papers won't blow away. And that is a perfectly reasonable use for a hammer. Or I could use the hammer to build a house or to build something beautiful, something that can be inhabited, right? I can use the hammer as a doorstop. It might work as a doorstop, but it's designed for something with a higher purpose. The Dharma is the exact same way. We can use the Dharma for some basic mental health, well-being, some basic feelings of pleasure and ease. Or we can look at the Dharma as a tool where we can build this incredible house that we can inhabit. My suggestion is you aspire to build an incredible house, right? And if you build the incredible house, everything else will come along with it, right? Everything else will come along with it. If I take my hammer and use it as a paperweight, it's not going to accidentally build me a house. I have to take the tool and actively build the house. The Dharma is the same way. If you aspire just to reduce stress, the Dharma will do that. 
hundred percent. It's done that for me. It's been great for anxiety. But if you don't look and aspire to the deeper spiritual parts, they can go totally unnoticed and undeveloped in your practice. They don't usually happen accidentally. You have to use the tools of the practice in a way that generates these deeper insights. And the Buddha said, look, we're all destined for awakening. Our heart and mind is built with this roadmap to love and compassion and deeper joy and deeper generosity. So I just wanted to pass on this invitation, this call to practice that was passed on to me and inspired me. And I'm so glad that someone said, hey, aspire for awakening. Sure, it's going to help with your headaches and your insomnia. It's going to help in your marriage. It's going to decrease your anxiety and all of this other stuff. But the spiritual part, you will be so grateful that those fruits fell from your tree as the practice moves forward. So I just wanted to make that invitation that when we talk about these unworldly feelings, make a commitment to them. Try them out. Aspire to the loftiest goal of your own freedom and your own liberation and the liberation of all beings. It's such an amazing aspiration. If you do it, all the other fruits will follow. But if we only look at the lowest hanging fruits, I've known meditators who've come to me and now that I've been a teacher for so long, tons and tons of students who cross my path during the year. And there's tons of students who've been practicing the Dharma for 20 years, 30 years, and they were never taught or never invited to aspire to use the Dharma past just some basic stress reduction. And then when I explain to them all of these other aspects of the path, it's like their heart and mind open up and they're like, oh my gosh, I never realized there could be so much to my Dharma practice. So my invitation, reach high, aspire high, right? Do it with love and gentleness and meet yourself where you're at. But aspire for the deepest part of the path because you are designed for that awakening. You're designed for that awakening. So that's my soapbox for awakening today. So vote for awakening. Let's hope awakening gets voted into office. And um, let's do some meta and let's, uh, let's intend for some awakening in the world. Why don't we while we're at it? Let's wish for all beings to be free from suffering for a spell here. We can never go wrong with that, right? It's just a great aspiration. Let's plop into the present again. Let's return to the body. A few long, slow, deep breaths. Filling the body with wakefulness, awareness, gentleness, and ease. Breath energy. Breathing in, breathing out, embodied beings coming together in practice in community, in Sangha. Let us remind ourselves the power of aspiration. The Buddha often speaks of the power of intention and says, our conscious aspirations 
are what feed our benevolent actions. So let us remind ourselves of our loftiest aspiration to free ourselves from suffering. And in that freedom, our grandest wish that all beings be free, that all beings be free. May we know true love and true joy in this lifetime. May we know that deep feeling of loving and being loved, caring and being cared for, trusting and being trusted. May all beings feel safe and secure. May all beings feel free from danger, worry, concern, despair. May all beings be free from suffering. May the planet be free from suffering. May we walk upon the earth with grace and ease. With the aspiration of blameless footsteps, blameless footsteps upon the earth, upon the environment, the environment upon which we depend for our nourishment, our safety, our protection, the role we play in protecting ourselves, others, and the planet. May all beings be free. And with the aspiration of gratitude, with an aspiration of generosity, Call to the altar of your heart a wish for the world. In this moment, what would you wish for all beings? If you could have one wish and know this wish would come to pass, what would you wish for all beings? May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Thank you, my friends, for your generous attention. Until next week.
Be safe. Be well. I'll see you. Thanks so much.